Uh, but this morning, um, Pastor Troy is uh, out of town. He is uh, preaching a, uh, a revival, they're calling it, at, down in Columbus, uh, Pastor Brandon Cruz Church. And so uh, that starts this morning and continues uh, tomorrow and Tuesday night. Uh, so be praying for him while he's down there. And so uh, he asked me to fill in this morning. I'm always uh, grateful and humbled anytime, uh, man, I get to do this. So uh, I'm excited to be with you all this morning. But as I mentioned, we do have a lot to get into. And uh, we're continuing in Acts chapter 8. So if you would, you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there, Acts chapter 8. We're going to spend uh, a lot of time there this morning. Um, and so I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. You can grab a Bible in uh, the pew in front of you if you don't have one. Uh, to Acts chapter 8, and um, we're just going to jump right in, all right, since we have so much. So uh, let's look at uh, Acts chapter 8, and we will start in verse 9, okay? So let's jump straight in. Uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 9. But, all right, let's stop right there for a second, okay? (laughs) Uh, Now, that word but, okay, uh, hold it together, middle schoolers, Uh, that is a conjunction word. Okay, so what that does is that ties what is about to happen to what just happened, okay? And so last week we started in Acts chapter 8, Pastor Troy uh, shared the first eight verses, and so let's just do a quick review, because what's about to happen is tied back to what has just happened. So by way of review, uh, the end of Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned, Uh, there's a persecution that's taking place uh, among the church in Jerusalem. Um, Saul, who we will uh, know later becomes Paul, Saul at this time is wreaking havoc on the church. And so this persecution and this havoc uh, has, has led to the church scattering to the surrounding area. Okay, So at this point we saw that uh, Philip uh, has moved to Samaria and he begins preaching Christ there among the Samaritans, okay? Uh, He's doing miracles, he's casting out spirits, he's healing people, and we saw that in verse 8 of last week, that because of what God was doing through Philip in Samaria, it says that there uh, there was great joy in that city, all right? So, what we see when we start out here in our passage today, that Uh, We're connected back to what just happened with the conjunction word, but, but, but is also uh, a contrasting word. And so what we're going to see is that even though God is doing something amazing in Samaria, uh, we're going to see that that's about to take a turn, okay? Uh, So the direction is about to change. God is doing something in Samaria. When God is at work, you can guarantee that Satan is also at work. When God's... uh, Uh, God's advancement, it's always met with opposition, okay? And the very first point I want you to to see this morning is that revival is met with resistance. Revival is met with resistance, and perhaps the the person who needs to hear that the most this morning isn't here. Uh, I was just talking to Jennifer (laughs) during meet and greet and found out that uh, Pastor Troy got down to Atlanta uh, at about 1 a.m., um, Saturday morning. He was supposed to get in earlier Friday, obviously. When he got there, the rental cars, the only ones they had were electric cars. Uh, and those electric cars weren't fully charged. And he had to go about an hour and a half away from the airport. So around two o'clock in the morning, he's driving around trying to find a place uh, to charge his, uh, his electric car, which I'm pretty sure he might have, uh, you know, broken, the, I don't know if they're laws, but he unplugged someone else's car to plug his in. <laughs> Um, and uh, anyways, he didn't get to where he was staying until five in the morning yesterday, okay? And remember, he's down there to preach a revival, and so uh, we can bet that God is going to do something incredible the next couple of days down there in Georgia because revival is always met with resistance, okay? And you may have experienced this in your own life. Uh, When God begins to do a work in you, then all of a sudden you're met with resistance in your own life that tries to stop what God is doing in and through you. Take heart. If that's you, be encouraged because that means that God is at work. Now, I want you to keep that in mind as we read through our passage today so now we can really get into it, okay? So Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9, we got a long passage going to verse 24. Uh, So follow along with me in your own Bible there. 
Uh, but there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the, apostle, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Verse 16, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. All right, now that's a lot going on in there. And it's clear that Satan is using Simon to counter what God is doing in Samaria. Before we get into our main points of the message, let me just introduce you to Simon and let's get to know our antagonist of this passage a little better. Notice in verse 18, it says, And when Simon saw that through laying on the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. Now, this is actually uh, uh, where we get our term simony from, okay? Uh, you may have never heard that term before, but simony is when you seek to make a profit from selling church offices, roles, or spiritual things, okay? And so we get that word simony from Simon the sorcerer who offered the apostles money to have the power um, to give people the Holy Ghost. This crime mainly shows up in the histories of the Catholic Church. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for a priest to pay a bribe to become a bishop or, or attempt to buy religious positions in the church to gain status or influence, and that's certainly not exclusive uh, to the Catholic Church, but you can see record of it throughout its history. Uh, that's called simony, okay? Uh, and then this Simon Magus, okay? So um, he is actually a historical figure. So while in Scripture his story ends in our passage today, uh, but his reputation and his influence continued throughout history to the point where you can even find statues and, engra excuse me, and engravings of Simon Magus throughout the world today. But here's what I really want us to see about Simon, and that is that Simon the sorcerer is a type of Antichrist. Simon the sorcerer is a type of Antichrist. In the first few verses of our passage, we can see a connection to Simon uh, and the second beast that's found in Revelation 19. Simon used sorcery to deceive, it says, the least to the greatest of Samaria. And we can see the beast used also great wonders to deceive the people of the earth, both small and great, to, receive, uh, to, to deceive them into receiving the mark of the beast. Look at Revelation 13. And he doth great wonders, right? So that he maketh fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do. In the sight of the beast saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And so he's deceiving the greatest, uh, to the, or excuse me, uh, with great wonders, he's deceiving people. Okay, in the tribulation period. Look down a little further in verse 16. It says, And he causeth both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Now we see in Acts 8, 8 through 9, that Simon makes himself to be some great one. All right? So he's deceiving the people of Samaria uh, from the least to the greatest, the same way that we see the beast 
deceiving with um, miracles and wonders, both small and great. But we also see that Simon uh, is pretending to be some great one, taking the glory to the point where their Samaritans are saying they're calling him the great power of God. All right? Now, in 2 Thessalonians 2, this is a chapter giving us warning about the events of the day of Christ. The church of Thessalonica was admonished to not be deceived, warning of the one who, in verse 4, opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. So Simon is opposing what God is doing in Samaria, but he's also exalting himself among the Samaritans, right? To the point where they called him the great power of God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. We see Simon among the Samaritans giving out that he's some great one, to the point where they're calling him the great power of God. We need to, to be aware of people like that. A little further down, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-10. through 10, uh, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. Now this is exactly what Simon is doing through this sorcery and this bewitching that he's carrying out on the Samaritans. He's using these tricks, these signs, these lying wonders to deceive them. Verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians continues on with all deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish. All right, so through this comparison of what uh, Simon is doing along with what we know about the Antichrist, we can, we can confidently say that Simon is a type of Antichrist. So it becomes clear that Simon is the bad guy in the story, okay? Now, at first glance, whenever we read it, you could think that Simon maybe had a change of heart or, uh, or you know, that he's a changed man. But upon a closer examination, it becomes clear that nothing has changed with Simon, and he is only a hindrance to the work of God in Samaria. And I want you to get that perspective on Simon because what we ultimately see in each point, uh, but prominently in the second two points today, is that Simon's response is contrasted to the Samaritan's response each step of the way. And so that's why our title for today is the sorcerer, or Simon the Sorcerer versus the Samaritans because we see this difference going on in their response to what God is doing in Samaria. Okay, So keep that in mind as we move through these points. But before we get into point number one, let's go ahead and take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, God, we come to you this morning and uh, thankful for your word, thankful for uh, the chance to learn more about you. And, and Lord, I just pray that this morning uh, that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word. Uh, Lord, that your strength would be made perfect in my weakness and that your word would be preached faithfully this morning so that uh, your spirit can do a work uh, in, in all of that. Uh, Lord, so we just ask you to do a work uh, that only you can do this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so now with that in mind, let's get into our first point uh, for study, which is, number one, the deceiving. The deceiving. We'll go back to verse 9, but there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery. And bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed. All right, they were all listening to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. Here's why I want us to understand from that, okay? In the absence of truth, people will follow anything that can keep their attention. In the absence of truth, people will follow anything that can keep their attention. Now, Simon had the Samaritans under his influence for a long time. It says that to Simon, the Samaritans had regard. Okay, that means that he had their attention and he had their admiration. On top of that, the apostles, they weren't sent to Samaria up until this point. So the Samaritans didn't have an abundance of truth to be able to, to know the difference between what Simon is saying and what God would say. Plus, we see that Simon had the people, it says bewitched. Okay, that's a key word. They were bewitched. He was intentionally keeping them from the truth. Look at Galatians 3.1. It says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? The Galatians were being bewitched. There was someone behind it that was bewitching them, that was keeping them from the truth. The same is true 
of Simon. He had bewitched the Samaritans to keep them from the truth. Why would Simon do that? Right? Why, why would he do that? Well, I think it's, it's, it's obvious from what we know about him in this passage. It's because that his influence over the Samaritans gave him pride, gave him power, it gave him a position, a prestige, and a profit. All right? So he desired to keep the Samaritans in the dark. But here's the thing. Simon was playing right along with it. All right? Because it says in verse 9 that he was giving out that himself was some great one. Right? He was, you want to think I'm great? Yes, you are correct in that, right? He's just like, yeah, of course. The great power of God, yep, that's me, right? He's playing right along with what they're doing. He doesn't try to hide it. Uh, in fact, he, he relished in their perception of him. Just look at what they referred to him as again in verse 10 the great power of God. This guy has deceived them to the point that they are attributing to God what is clearly a ploy of Satan. And here's what happens when people are deceived. When people are deceived, God doesn't get the credit that he deserves. Satan's deception will always seek to prop himself up and rob God of due glory. This sorcery will not only uh, take from what God is doing, but it will mess with you too. So let's do a uh, a brief Bible study on sorcery in Scripture. It falls into a category along with things like witchcraft, divination, enchantments, astrology, familiar spirits. You can find all these things in the Bible. And these are all things that God calls abominations. Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 13, There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. Verse 12, for all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Right? He's like, get them out of here. You shouldn't have any part in this. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. And you might be thinking that you're safe. Right? When you see that list and you, you hear... You're like, oh man, you know, I don't mess around with that stuff. I don't have any voodoo dolls. I haven't been to a seance lately, right? And that's good. That's good. Keep that up, all right? Stay away from those things. But I'm afraid that we scoff at this wickedness that God is so serious about. And even if you're unaffected by it, we have a culture that is obsessed with it. There are a few reasons that I don't think we always view this the way that that God views it. And the first is because sorcery will, number one, deceive you. Sorcery will deceive you. It will trick you. That's part of its goal. We see in another verse, uh, and this could be a cross-reference to to go back to our point that Simon is a type of Antichrist. Uh, We see another uh, verse in Revelation 18.23 where uh, the angel decries the destruction of Babylon. He says, for thy sorceries, at the end of the verse, for thy sorceries... We're, we're all nations deceived. The enemy uses sorcery to deceive the nations, right? That includes a lot of people. That can potentially include you. Sorcery is used to deceive you. It certainly did that to the Samaritans, right? They were under Simon's power for a long time until the truth of God's word was preached to them. However, it wasn't just the Samaritans that were deceived. Simon himself was deceived by the sorcery that he used. Because again, remember what he said? He put out that he was some great one and uh, he went along with that he was the power of God, right? Something that he wasn't. Look at what Galatians 6.3 says. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, what does he do? He deceiveth himself. Simon himself was deceived. You see, sorcery not only deceives the crowd, but it deceives the one that uses it as well. And once you let sorcery deceive you, it will then begin to desensitize you. Number two, it will begin to desensitize you. 1 Timothy 4 says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed, that should sound familiar, to seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared 
with a hot iron, right? When you have your conscience seared, you become desensitized. You're, you're no longer sensitive to what God is doing or what the Spirit might be doing in your life. And what did the Samaritans do? Well, it says they gave heed to Simon, just like we saw in 1 Timothy there. They gave heed to Simon. They listened to him. And in our ignorance of what God says about this topic, we have given heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And we may excuse our involvement or even our enjoyment in these things that God calls an abomination. In so doing, we have desensitized ourselves to to the evil effect it has on us. Now listen, this is everywhere in our culture, right? Especially this time of year, okay? All right? It's easy to see all this this evil, this wicked, wicked stuff, um, sorcery, witchcraft, all this, all this demonic stuff this time of year, okay? Uh, and as the kids pastor, I always try to, uh, you know, keep an eye out for, for what um, entertainment industry or what this world is feeding to our kids. And, and, and quite honestly, there's a lot of children's shows that have an overwhelming amount of sorcery or witchcraft in them. And listen, I'm not talking about the bippity-boppity-boo kind, Okay? It's not like that anymore. They're using spell books, incantations. They call on the power of ancestral spirits in some of these kids' shows. Right? Usually the sorcerer, and that's what he is, the sorcerer in there, you either sympathize with him because he's, he's a bumbling idiot, he just can't get it right, you're like, oh, poor guy. Or in some of these kids' shows, he's the hero, right? Or he's the one saving the day with his, with his spells and his sorcery. All right? We have to be careful of that because we get deceived thinking, oh, it's just a kid's show. And then what happens, either ourselves or our kids, they become desensitized to it. I, I, I saw this, you know, just to be I saw this in my own house. Uh, years ago, our girls used to watch a show called Sophia the First, and he's got a sorcerer in there, and uh, they were playing one day after watching it, and they were like, all right, now let's get out our spell book. And I overheard it. I was in the other room. I was like, hold on. Hold on a second. <laughs> There's no spell books in our house. There's only one book in our house, and that's the Bible, all right? So get that spell book out of here, right? And you might think it's harmless, but I'm afraid that's because we've been deceived and we've been desensitized, right? I mean, there are thousands of these horror movies that come out. Again, especially this time of year. I saw there's one that's coming out. It's called Talk To Me. You know what it is? It's this group of kids that are uh, using divination or consulting what the Bible would call familiar spirits. They're talking to these dead people, right? And this is entertainment. Our culture eats it up, right? Astrology, you can find that everywhere. You can still buy a Ouija board, right? This is a type of of divination, and I'm afraid that this is more prevalent than you realize. There's there's even, um, you know, one of the pastors in the Living Faith Fellowship, he he, he dabbled in divination before his salvation and even afterwards. Pastor Sam Miles, he, he's open about this story, right? And he's one of the prominent pastors in our, in our fellowship. Th- this isn't something that, you know, is reserved for dark alleys or, or, or basements or, you know, whatever. This is out there. And listen, I know that I run the risk of sounding legalistic, um, but, I, you know, I don't want you to violate your conscience, and I certainly don't want you to violate Scripture, when it comes to these things. And if your conscience will allow you to violate Scripture when it comes to this, well, you need to reevaluate your perspective on it and look at it the way that God has it. Because listen, I'm not saying, you know, don't go trick-or-treating next weekend with your kids. I'm just saying I would love to see some of your kids dress up like apostles out there. <laughs> laying hands on other kids, you know. <laughs> rebuking all the witches and wizards out there. May your candy perish with thee, you know. (laughs) Your kid comes to my house dressed like an apostle. I have something special for him. (laughs) But here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid we're more influenced by this evil than we realize. And it's obvious that this world around us is not just influenced by it, but they are immersed in it. So do you know what happens when your conscience becomes seared or desensitized? It leads to the third thing, and this is sorcery's ultimate goal. And that is that it will defile you. It will defile you. First it will deceive you. It will desensitize you. And then it will defile you. 
Titus 1.15. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. What did we see in our last verse? Our conscience becomes seared. It becomes desensitized. Now it becomes defiled. Leviticus 19.31. Regard not them that have familiar spirits, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. You see, the category of sorcery is a slippery slope. And it ends, or its end goal is to defile you. But God has called you to be sanctified. He has called you to be holy, to be set apart. If you look later in Leviticus where he's talking about these things, he says, I even set my face against that soul, the ones that mess with that stuff. Verse 7 says, Sanctify yourselves therefore, and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God, and ye shall keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord which sanctify you. We become sanctified by keeping God's word, by obeying his word. Being deceived, desensitized, and ultimately defiled by sorcery is the opposite of that. It's the opposite of what God has called us to. So you can see why God is so serious about this sin. And I'm afraid that we have given place to the devil by our casual attitude when it comes to this topic. So let me call on you to take it as seriously in your own life and in your family's life as God takes it. Be set apart from the world when it comes to this deceivable sin. Because the moment you excuse it is the moment that you begin your decline to defilement. So, we're moving past deceiving, okay? And, and we take a positive turn for the Samaritans. Because next, point number two, is the believing. The believing. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Okay, now the Samaritans, they were legitimately changed from Philip's preaching. Their eyes were opened to the truth. They were no longer deceived. And so we see, letter A, that the Samaritans believed out of conviction. The Samaritans believed out of conviction. It says, and when they believed Philip preaching, they were baptized. From here we can see the direct correlation between the Samaritans' belief in the preaching of God's word and their obedience in baptism. And that is because true belief results in obedience. True belief results in obedience. This is crucial to understand because we're going to see how Simon tries to work his way around this. All right? But first, there's a couple of key phrases I want you to see. The first one is that they believe Philip preaching concerning the kingdom of God. All right? Now, all you um, Bible students out there, especially uh, my MTT year one class, right? Uh, that, should, that, should, that should ring a bell. When you see the kingdom of God mentioned in Scripture, that should ring a bell. This is the spiritual kingdom, right? This is the spiritual side of what God is doing as opposed to the kingdom of what? Who knows it? Heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the physical side. But here we see Philip preaching about the kingdom of God. Now this is the second time it's found in the book of Acts. The first we see uh, the kingdom of God in Acts 1-3. And, and in that verse, it's, it's a reference back to what Christ was teaching his disciples before his ascension. We'll see it a few more times before uh, the book of Acts ends, but the interesting thing about the kingdom of God being mentioned here is that this is the first time that it's being preached. Okay, For a while in Acts, the Jews had the chance to usher in both kingdoms. Right? We covered that a lot in that first portion of Acts uh, that we went through, Acts 1-7. through 7. They could usher in the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God if they accepted Christ as their Messiah. But since they received strike three in the previous chapter when they stoned Stephen, God has now moved his mission to a strictly spiritual operation. And this is still the kingdom that we have a part in building today. It's the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom by reproducing spiritual sons of God. The other key thing I want us to see is that he was preaching the name of Jesus Christ. Right? So back in Acts 4.12, we see that there was salvation comes by no other name but by the name of Jesus Christ. All right? And then we can see the importance of that in Romans um, 10, 9 through 15. Uh, for time's sake, we're not going to look at that. But what we see is that God is moving. Uh, he, we see in that passage that, that there's, there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. And what we're seeing in our passage today is that transition is happening. 
we see that we're moving from strictly Jerusalem with a Jewish audience. We moved out to Samaria. Samaritans were uh, half Jew and half Gentile. And then from there, that opens the gate to the uttermost, to the, to the rest of the world. It's, we, it's the same progression that we see in Acts 1.8. Okay? And Simon show, or excuse me, Philip shows up and he preaches the name of Jesus Christ. He's been sent. Uh, the Samaritans have heard. Uh, they have responded in faith. They have believed what he has said, and they called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And that's how people are saved today. We're still saved the same way by calling upon the name of the Lord, by the na- calling upon the name of Jesus Christ. Okay? So if you're here today and the Lord is convicting you of your sin, man, don't ignore that. But instead, respond in belief in obedience, the same way the Samaritans did. They believed out of conviction, but here's the contrast. Simon believed out of convenience. Simon believed out of convenience. So back in first, verse 12, it says, But when they believed, referring to the Samaritans, they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 13 starts with the word, Then. Then Simon himself believed also. So after everyone else believed and was baptized, then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now here's one of those main contrasts we see between Simon and the Samaritans. The Samaritans believed after hearing Philip's preaching, but Simon believed after everyone else believed. Right? Verse 12, Samaritans believe Philip. They get baptized as a result. Verse 13 starts with the all-important word, then. And this is key. And honestly, I didn't notice it right away when I was studying this until I was talking uh, to Tom Steele throughout the week about it, and he, he pointed it out to me. But verse 13 starts with the word then to make a distinction between the Samaritans' belief and Simon's belief. After everyone else believed, then Simon believed. Why do you think that is? Well, if we think about it, you know, before Philip showed up, Simon had a pretty good gig going on, didn't he? We mentioned before he had prestige among the people, he had a position over the people, and he was making a profit profit from the people. And now that the truth of God's word has broken the influence that Simon had over the Samaritans, he's got to find a way to salvage what he's lost, right? He's thinking, well, you got to go along to get along. If you can't beat them, join them, right? And as far as we can tell, Simon's baptism had nothing to do with his belief. It was clear that the Samaritans were baptized as a result of their belief. But look at how verse 13 is worded. It says, Then Simon believed himself also. And when, not then, not as a result, and when he was baptized. Again, his baptism wasn't out of obedience, but out of convenience, Because look at what his baptism got him. It got him access to Philip. Because when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. And it got him access to what he was really interested in. It was the miracles and the signs that came with Philip. Again, think of Simon's background. He used sorcery, which is like the wicked equivalent of miracles and signs to gain influence over the people. And now there's this competition in town, right? And, And I love this because it says that he wondered beholding the miracles and signs which were done. That word wondered right there, that's the, word, that's the same word that's translated bewitched earlier in the passage. Right? So talk about poetic justice. Now the tables have turned for Simon. He no longer is in a position of power. He's now the one under the spell, so to speak. Right? Because he has been deceived and defiled by his own practice. And now he is bewitched by, or he wondered after, the miracles and signs that Philip was doing. And listen, there's a lesson in here for all of us. We can say the right things, and we can even do the right things. But our motives can be completely selfish out of sheer convenience for ourselves. Right? Just like Simon, we can find ourselves saying the right things. Oh yeah, no, I believe. And doing the right things, oh yeah, no, I'll get baptized. But our relationship with the Lord is dead. Our walk with God becomes stagnant with only the appearance of belief and obedience. 
Isaiah 29, 13 says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but what have they done? But they have removed their heart from me. They're saying the right things, look good on the outside, but their heart has been removed far from me. Don't let that be true of you. Don't let that be true of us as a church. So, we see the deceiving. We see or the deceiving, we see the believing, and then number 3, we see the receiving. The receiving. Now, verse 14 continues, now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. Word had gotten back to Jerusalem where the apostles were still working despite the persecution. We saw that in verse 1 of this chapter. They agreed to send Peter and John to Samaria, not just to support the work that God was doing there, but also to confirm it. Their presence is a confirmation that God is working outside of the house of Israel. Uh, and, and now Acts 1.8 is being fulfilled. Right? So we see that the Samaritans received the word of God. The Samaritans received the word of God. Philip showed up preaching and verse 14 says that they received the word of God. They didn't just hear it, but they took it in. They obeyed it. They obeyed the word of God. It resulted in their obedience and baptism. They let it change them. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. What does it do? Which effectually worketh also in you that believe. You see, they received the word of God and it began to do a work in them. It began to change them. And if you'll receive God's word, if you'll believe God's word, if you'll receive God's word, you take it in, you obey it, you apply it to your own life, it will do an effective work in you. And that work is carried out by the Holy Ghost. Because you see, the Word of God and the Holy Ghost go hand in hand when it comes to effectually working in a believer, right? So after the Samaritans received the Word of God, Peter and John were sent so that they might receive the Holy Ghost. They received the Word of God, and then the next thing we see, they receive the Holy Ghost because those things go hand in hand. Verse 15 continues, who uh, referring to Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Verse 16, a little, uh, little comment here on what's going on. It says, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, right? So the Samaritans were baptized, but they hadn't received the Holy Ghost yet. It didn't fall upon them. So verse 17 goes, uh, then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost, right? So Peter and John show up. They pray that they'll receive the Holy Ghost. They lay hands on them, and then the Samaritans receive the Holy Ghost. All right? Now, I love this because it ties right back to what Jesus was teaching his disciples when they asked him how to pray. So back in the Gospels, there, there's a point where the disciples are like, Lord, teach us to pray, okay? And um, you can see that in Luke 19, or excuse me, Luke 11, 9 through 13, but he's saying, listen, if you ask, I'm going to give it to you. And what do they do? Well, they ask that the Samaritans would receive the Holy Ghost. Uh, Luke eleven thirteen says, um, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? All right? So these apostles, they were paying attention when Jesus was talking. He said, ask for it, and when you ask, I'm going you know, to give the Holy Spirit to whoever asks for it. So they asked, and then the Samaritans received all right, but for those of you that are keeping score at home, you'll notice that once again, we see this unique circumstance where people are saved, to put it under one term, but yet by different requirements and in a different order. Okay, Now, you have to keep in mind that this first portion of Acts is a transitional time, uh, a time period that, that, that God is working in. He's moving from the law to grace. He's moving from the nation of Israel to the church. We see in this chapter that he is in the midst of a transition as he moves from the Jews to the Samaritans and then ultimately to the Gentiles, to the uttermost. But think back to Acts 2.38, right? when, when Peter is preaching to the Jews. 
It says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Right? So they had to repent, they had to be baptized for the remission of sins, and then they would receive the Holy Ghost. In our passage today, they believed Philip, they responded with obedience and baptism, and then once the apostles showed up, which we can assume was some time later, they prayed, they laid hands on them, and then they received the Holy Ghost. It's different, right? It's a different order, different situation. We'll see an even more specific circumstance later in the same chapter with the Ethiopian eunuch in the next couple of weeks. But if you jumped ahead to Acts chapter 10, so we have this example in Acts 2, we have the example in Acts 8 that we're looking at today, jump ahead to Acts 10 when Gentiles receive the Holy Ghost. Just to summarize what's going on here, these Gentiles who believed then received the Holy Ghost and then were baptized in obedience, not as a requirement for salvation. So again, different circumstances, different order, but this is essentially God's pattern for salvation for us today, to believe, um, and then we receive the Holy Ghost at that moment of salvation. But this is why it's dangerous to pull your doctrine for salvation out of this portion of Acts. Because in the first third of the book so far of Acts, we've looked at three different scenarios. And for those who would claim that we must be baptized to receive the Holy Ghost, just like in Acts 2, they have a hard time explaining what happened with the Samaritans here in Acts 8. And for those that believe you must have the laying on of hands to receive the Holy Ghost, they have a hard time explaining what happened with the Gentiles in Acts 10. But this all makes sense if you just let God speak for himself, right? If you just understand the context of these events in Acts. And context is perhaps the greatest Bible study key to understanding what is going on in a passage. All right, so the Samaritans have received the Holy Ghost based upon their belief and obedience, but now let's contrast that to Simon, okay? Now let's look at Simon in verse 18. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, give me also this power on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. See, Simon sees that when the apostles lay their hands on the Samaritans, they receive the Holy Ghost, and he offers them money to be able to do the same. Again, remember Simon's history as a sorcerer. He's been using his powers and his tricks to profit from his influence over the Samaritans. So in his mind, he sees this neat trick that the apostles can do, and he views it as a business opportunity. Right? He offers to pay them as a, as a financial investment. You can clearly see Simon's motives behind what he's doing here. He says, give me also this power. He's not interested in the Holy Ghost. He's interested in the power that comes with it. Give me also this power. Okay? He, wants to, he wants the appearance of an apostle and the power that comes with it. But we can see who is behind someone like Simon who will use spiritual influence for personal profit in 2 Corinthians. Look at what 2 Corinthians says, 11, starting in verse 13. It says, For such are false apostles. Right? Simon wanted the power of the apostle, but he wasn't a true apostle. He was a false apostle. What? A deceitful worker, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. That's exactly what Simon was trying to do. He was a false apostle. He was a deceitful worker, but he wanted to look like an apostle. Well, well who, who do you think... Who could possibly be behind this? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 14, And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. You see, Simon is a false apostle. He wants to look like one, but he doesn't want to follow the steps that God has laid out. And that offer that Simon made is what revealed his true motives, right? Which led to Simon receiving something, okay? We saw the Samaritans receive the word of God and the Holy Ghost, but let's contrast that to what Simon received. Simon received a rebuke. Simon received a rebuke. Verse 20, But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Because of Simon's offer, he received a rebuke from Peter. Look back at when Christ was commissioning his disciples to go out and to preach the kingdom of heaven, which Peter was present for. 
What does he say at the end of verse 8? Freely ye have received, freely give. When it comes to the power given to the apostles, Peter and John received it freely, and they would give it freely. So Simon's offer was not only an insult to Peter and John, but it was in direct disobedience to what Christ had commissioned. And there's a couple points I want us to take away from this, and that is first, that you can't buy salvation. You can't buy your salvation. Notice that in Peter's response to Simon, he rebukes him for assuming that the gift of God, that's a key, a key phrase right there, that the gift of God can be purchased with money. Now, for just a minute, let me just speak to some of those of you in this room that may have never trusted Jesus Christ for your salvation. You must understand that no matter what your background is, you cannot purchase or earn your salvation. I want you to see a couple key verses that that most folks in this room, they'd be familiar with, but um, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't know that, that you have a relationship with the Lord, these are the most important verses that you'll hear today. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Now a wage, a wage, that's something that you earn, right? You work a job, you earn a wage, they pay you for that. Well, because of your sin, you have earned something. And the thing that you have earned has, is death. But Romans 6.23 continues, but... The gift of God, there's that key phrase, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you can't buy salvation. The only thing that you can buy is your separation from Jesus Christ, is is death in your sin. But the gift of God is eternal life, right? Again, a wage is something that you earn, but a gift, a gift, now that's something that someone else has paid for. Someone else has paid for the gift of your salvation. And God offers offers that gift that has already been paid for by his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. It's not something that you can buy because Christ has already paid for that gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not something you can do, it is the gift of God. There's that key phrase again. Not of works, You can't earn it, you can't pay for it, you can't purchase it, lest any man should boast. You see, salvation is available to everyone by grace through faith. There is nothing you can do to buy it for yourself. It is the gift of God. And for you to make it personal, you simply must receive the gift. That's all you can do is receive the gift that God has already purchased through the blood of his son and that he extends to you. You can't buy it. You can't purchase it. And listen, there's nothing more important for you to take care of today than to know that you have received the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so let me encourage you. I know we're kind of in the middle of things here towards the end, but man, if you've never made that gift personal, do it today. You come talk to me. Come talk to almost anyone in this room. Talk to the person that brought you. And we can settle that today because you can't buy it. You can't purchase it. You can only receive what God has already paid for through his son for you. Now, for those of us who know that we're saved, we have a lesson to learn here as well. And that is that you can't buy spiritual growth. You can't buy spiritual growth. What was Simon trying to do here? Simon was trying to skip the spiritual growth process and go straight to the results. Right? For the Samaritans, they receive the Holy Ghost at the laying on of the hands. We receive the Holy Ghost at the moment of salvation. But there is a process for us to get us to the point where we are filled with the Holy Spirit or where we are walking in the Spirit. And that's a growth process to spiritual maturity. And you can't buy that. You can't skip that. You can't purchase spiritual growth. You have to understand when it comes to walking in the Spirit, you cannot skip the process. You cannot bypass belief and obedience. We can see that the Holy Spirit is a gift from God in some of the verses that we already saw today. You can look at those on your own, but each one points to the fact that the Holy Ghost is a gift. We can't buy it. Right? We can only be obedient 
to what we heard and believe it and take those steps to the point of spiritual maturity. So from Simon's offer to essentially purchase the Holy Ghost, he is saying, listen, I want to skip the hearing of God's Word. I want to skip the believing of God's Word. I want to skip the obeying of God's Word and impart spiritual maturity on whomsoever I lay hands or whoever will pay for it. And here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that some of the people in this church want to skip the spiritual growth part and go straight to the power, the power of God or the influence that only comes from believing and obeying the Word of God. They want to skip the attending and learning and engaging and go straight to the leading. But you can't bypass belief and obedience and buy your way into spiritual maturity. So I don't want to do A, B, or C, but I'll write a check for X, Y, and Z. Right? Isn't my money enough? But there's a difference between funding a ministry and fulfilling your ministry according to Colossians 4.17. Listen, God is not interested in your money. He wants your heart to be right with him. That was Simon's issue. Peter said, thy heart is not right in the sight of God. I'm concerned that we have members of this church that say and do the right things, but not from the right motives. Look at what is said of Amaziah in the Old Testament, 2 Corinthians 25, 2. It says, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. All right, it looked like he was doing what was right. But the verse continues, but not with a perfect heart. How many of us does that verse describe? How many of us are playing a game? I show up on Sundays, I, I tithe, I give to missions, I volunteer, I do what looks right on the outside, but not with a perfect heart, not with a heart that is right in the sight of God. Because you can fool your pastors, you can fuel, uh, fool the people in, in the pew next to you, you can even be fooling yourself, but you can't fool God. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You can't even know your own heart, but God knows it. He sees it. Simon received a rebuke because he thought he could bypass belief and obedience because his heart was not right with God. But he also had the opportunity to make it right because Simon also received a call to repent. He also received a call to repent. <clears throat> Simon was still unrepentant even after his profession, right? That old man still had a grip on Simon. He had not changed his mind about his former life. He had not changed his ways or direction because he wanted to continue to profit off of miracles. And so Peter tells him in verse 22, Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter calls him to repent and to pray to God for forgiveness for the thought of his heart. For us... Today, we don't have an apostle to call us out on our sin, but we have been given the word of God to identify the thoughts of our heart, according to Hebrews 4.12. You let God's word convict you, and then you change your way from that. You repent from that. If we allow God's word to do a work in our lives and convict us of where we're wrong, then we must seek God and call upon him for forgiveness. Simon was called to repent from his sins, and, and uh, we can see that his sins were wickedness, bitterness, and iniquity, right? Now, we don't have time for it today, but uh, just to briefly describe those, and you have some verses there I'd encourage you to check out on your own, but each one of these sins that Simon is guilty of, we are called to turn away from, to repent from. Wickedness, that's a sin committed against someone else. It's akin to malice, right? So Simon committed this sin against the Samaritans. Isaiah tells us that we're to forsake that and return unto the Lord. The other sin is bitterness, right? He says that he is in the gall, which is, which is like a poison, of bitterness in verse 23, right? That, that poison has, has started to grow and spread throughout his soul. Uh, so bitterness is a sin you hold against someone else. It's internal. It's undealt with, right? So Simon has this sin against the apostles who have come and ruined his livelihood. 
So wickedness against the Samaritans, bitterness against the apostles. We see in Hebrews that it's like a root that takes place, begins to grow within our heart and our mind. Deuteronomy, it says we're to turn away from that, we're to repent, turn away from it, from that root of bitterness. Then we have iniquity, right? He says, Peter says that he is in the bond of iniquity. That's a sin that you commit against yourself. It holds you captive. It keeps you in bondage to it. Simon, now this is a sin that Simon committed against himself through his pride, through his deception, as a result of his sorcery. Proverbs 5.22 says, His own iniquity shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sin. Simon was still held to that sin. It, it wouldn't let him repent. And we see that we're to, to change our ways from our iniquity and, and to, to be used instead uh, for righteousness' sake. Okay? But here's, here's what I want us to look at, and here's how we'll wrap up. And that's letter C, Simon's response. We see Simon's response. So he, he received a rebuke. He received a call to repent. But here we see a big difference in Simon and the Samaritans, where the, the Samaritans were right with the Lord. They believed. They were obedient. But even in this chance that Simon had to make things right, we still see that, that he doesn't respond the same way the Samaritans do. Verse 24, after receiving that rebuke and call to repent, says, then answered Simon and said, pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. And here's what I want us to understand. Simon attempted to outsource repentance and avoid responsibility. He attempted to outsource repentance and avoid responsibility. See, in this verse, Peter told him, Peter told Simon to pray to the Lord. But what does Simon say? Well, why don't you pray for me? I'm not going to do that. Why don't you do it for me? He tries to outsource that repentance. And, then, and what's he concerned with? That none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. Simon was just afraid of, of the responsibility that came with his sin, the consequences of his sin. He didn't want to perish, and he didn't want his money to perish. So he's like, why don't you pray to the Lord for me and ask him to, to keep this stuff from happening to me? Right? He tried to avoid the responsibility of his sin. Here's what I think we need to understand from this. <clears throat> and this may sound simple, but I'm, I'm afraid that, that more of us do this than we realize. But you cannot outsource your walk with God. Just like you can't bypass belief and obedience to spiritual maturity, you can't outsource the responsibility that is on you to be right with God. That is up to you. You can't trust that to your pastors. You can't trust that to the person that discipled you. You can't trust that to some priest or, or, or something else. That is between you and the Lord, and you are responsible for it. You can't outsource repentance. You can't avoid responsibility. And understand that each person in here must take responsibility for his or her own relationship with God. And so let me just encourage you with this. If God is showing you something that you need to forsake in your life, Repent. If he's showing you a truth from his word, believe it. And if he's showing you a step that you need to take, obey it. Will you bow your heads with me? And again, let me just speak to those of you here today that, that may be outside of a relationship with the Lord. I pray that today you, you saw from the truth of God's word that there's nothing that you can do to earn that salvation, to earn that gift. You can't buy it. You can't do enough good things. It comes only from receiving the gift of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he's made on the cross. And so if you'd like to know how to do that, please come talk to, to me down here. Come talk to, to someone else in the church that you know has a relationship with the Lord. There'd be nothing more um, that we'd want to do than to help you settle that today. And for those of you that, that have a relationship with the Lord and, and maybe he's, he's showing something you today where maybe you're a little casual in certain sins in your life, you need to repent from that. You need to, to make it right. Man, take that step. Be obedient. Don't try to pass that off. Don't get deceived by it. Don't, don't get desensitized to sin in your life. Don't let it defile you, but, but make it right. Get right with God today. 
Maybe some of you need to take a step. You need to be obedient in something. You need to get baptized. Maybe you need to, to get discipled. Maybe you need to uh, attend MTT and you start coming to life group. Something. You start serving in a ministry. Man, be obedient to that. Believe God at his word. Obey his word. And you'll be right with the Lord. God, we come to you this morning and thankful for your word. I pray that um, it spoke to the hearts of everyone in here today and, and that your spirit did a work that only you can do. Uh, Lord, so we trust you that you'll continue um, to be at work in our lives as long as we're faithful to your word, Lord. So I pray that that would, be, uh, that, w- that would be true of us, that we would simply hear your word, we would believe it because it is your word, receive it in truth as the word of God, that we'd be obedient to it and you'd be glorified through all that. We pray these things in your name. Amen.